truth. We've been dealing with that for a while. We will continue with it today. Because truth is essential in the battle with Satan. He is a liar, and his lies have resulted in the destruction of both many Christians and non-Christians. Unbelievers, blinded by his deceit and their own desires, thwart for themselves God's wrath, which will culminate ultimately in eternal condemnation in hell, unless they recognize the truth and repent to follow it. Multitudes of Christians end up wasting their lives in spiritual defeat. Why? Because they believe the devil's lies instead of holding fast to the truth of the word of God. The belt of truth is the first piece of equipment that God has given us in defense against Satan's schemes. Ephesians 6.14 is the very first piece of equipment Paul explains to us in the panoply of equipment that God has given us. Now, it's no easy task to stand firm against our adversary. He is very subtle. The truth is not easily discerned. Interesting quote I found from uh, Johann von Goethe. He says, It is easier to perceive error than to find truth, for the former lies on the surface and easily seen, while the latter lies in the depth where few are willing to search for it. Truth. It takes some work to dig it out sometimes. Probably even more so now because America has been a paradigm shift now for nearly a generation. We've been shifting to a postmodern view of everything, one in which is, frankly, in some subcultures now normal to determine truth by how you feel, regardless of what the facts may or may not be. We increasingly find that there are few that seek truth, fewer that will face the truth, and even fewer still that will proclaim the truth once they know it. This is the nature of the society we live in. And so while the search for truth can be tough, it must be a constant quest because it is our first line of defense. We find also that truth is to be the mark of the Christian. Why? Well, first of all, our Savior is the truth and we're to reflect him. He's the truth, the way, and the life, John 14, 6. We also know from John 17, 17 that his word is true. We are to reflect him. And so this morning, we continue in our quest to prepare ourselves with the belt of truth by exposing another area of Satan's lies against God. We've already looked at lies against God's existence. We've looked at lies against God's infinite nature, his truthfulness, his wisdom, his holiness, and then last week, his righteousness and justice. This morning, we're going to be looking at the lies he has against God's goodness and his love. Now, Satan's lies against God's goodness and love parallel each other, and they are related to his mercy and grace, which we'll look at next week. Goodness is somewhat foundational because if God is not good, then he's not loving, merciful, or gracious. It arises out of this character, this attribute. Now, Satan does not hesitate with a direct lie if he can get away with it. And he has gotten away with it with a lot of people right here, with a denial that God is good at all. Now, the classic bold-faced lie that he gives is a claim that if God was good and loving, then he would not allow anybody to suffer. So the existence of suffering is therefore proof that God is not good and loving. The premise is, is that because suffering exists, one of two things would be true. Either God is not able to stop it, 
in which case he really wouldn't be sovereign, would he? All-powerful, omnipotent. We attack his character there. Or he's not good and loving because he won't stop, in which case he must be evil. Or both. The first part of the argument that God cannot stop suffering means that he'd be a finite being, limited in power, limited in ability. He could not carry out his will. He therefore would be a being who's subject to circumstance instead of the sovereign one over them, and perhaps maybe he doesn't even exist. Over the last several weeks, we have examined some of these things. We had looked specifically at God's infinite nature. We find that Satan's lies don't hold up. God is infinite in relationship to space and time, to uh, knowledge, power, and rule. Our God is the only eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign being. There is nothing else like him. He does not lack in any ability in any manner. Those attributes are what set him apart from all creation. Those are the attributes that make him intrinsically holy. He is different than us, set apart from us. He is holy because he holds these attributes. The second aspect of this argument is that if God is able and was good and loving, then he would not allow tough, hard things to happen that cause suffering. God would not allow natural disasters such as earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes. And being from the West, we have to throw in wildfires. But a lot of people are killed in name of those things, aren't they? They claim that God would not allow suffering caused by war and crime to continue. If God was good... How then could he have allowed so many great atrocities to have occurred throughout history, including the massive murders of the last century, nearly unprecedented between time beforehand? We often think of the Nazi Holocaust, but what about the genocide of the Armenians by the Turks at the beginning of the last century? What about Stalin's direct massacres as well as his forced starvations, nearly wiped out the Ukraine? Cambodia's killing fields, more than two million died in that nation. The communist purges in China over and over again. The bloodbath in Rwanda, as well as the continuing murders and wars waged by Islamic thugs and terrorists around the world. We're still facing those. Still happening. Satan argues if God was good, he'd not allow any of these things to happen. If he was loving, he certainly would not send those murdered in these things or dying in these tragedies to go to hell, would he? That's his argument. It's weird, but... Satan is actually the one who's the purveyor of these atrocities. He is the one who's actually doing it. He is the father of lies. John 8:44 says he was a murderer from the beginning. In a real sense, we find that Satan is blaming God for creating him and then allowing him to exist after he fell. That's really what it comes down to. God, it's your fault for evil because you created me, I fell, and you've let me continue to exist. If you're good, you would have destroyed me a long time ago. Of course, you know Satan really wouldn't want that, would he? Now, when it comes to humans, we find there are a few rare individuals here and there that truly are thoughtful about those who have suffered such things. They have a real compassion and a desire to alleviate suffering if they can and stop it if at all possible. Such people might think deeply about the philosophical aspects of the questions involved here. 
But most people you'll ever hear this argument from are only using it as a smokescreen. They are not personally thinking about suffering of people around the world. There are very few that are altruistic enough to be concerned about the welfare of others. They are not the ones who are very quick to jump in and go to a disaster area and help out. If they do help out with a check or sending some material things, it's a pittance compared to what they could do if they really were that concerned about the suffering around the world. They have means, they have ability, they do little or nothing, and yet they still think themselves to be good and loving. Their argument against God is quite hypocritical, but rarely do they recognize that in denying God's goodness and his love, they actually point the finger back at themselves for their own guilt and allowing him to continue. Yet they still think of themselves as good. Now, most people use this argument to reject God as being good and loving because they themselves personally have suffered something or someone close to them has suffered something traumatic. And they judge God as failing because God is not meeting what they themselves desire. That's the real issue for them. They take the truth of God being sovereign, then they use it to accuse him of being responsible for whatever they or their loved ones have suffered, concluding he must be evil, he must be cruel instead of good and loving because we have suffered. I have had, I'm sure you've had as well, encounters with such people. They're bitter against God because something's occurred. Perhaps you've been in that position yourself. Perhaps you may even feel that way this morning. It is not unusual to develop this kind of attitude when you have suffered the tragic death of a loved one or some sort of abuse or great tragedy has befallen you or someone you love. But understand, this accusation of God being guilty of evil because you have endured suffering forgets a lot of truth. They want to accuse God of directly causing it or failing to prevent it. We need to come back to some basic truths here. The premise almost sounds logical until you start understanding what really is true. The lie in all these cases is the same, and it's believed for the same reasons. First, people forget God's character. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just. They ignore their own culpability. Third, they fail to recognize God's goodness and love demonstrated to them and all mankind. And then fourth, what we have seen consistently through all of this, is they think God is like they are, views everything like they do, and should act like they would if they could, or at least how they think they would. Let's start with God's holiness, righteousness, and justice. I've pointed out the consequences of these over the last several weeks. Holiness and righteousness of God will not permit anything sinful in His presence. So when we look at the attributes of God themselves and holiness in particular, we see He is set apart from all creation and there is this chasm between us and God that we cannot bridge by any means and method of our own. Remember what God told Moses when Moses wanted to see God's glory in Exodus 33.20? You cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. We can't comprehend a glory that strong, perfection in everything, that we would be destroyed in its presence. And yet that's what God told Moses. 
So I'll hide you in the cleft, cover you with my hand. You can see my afterglory. You can't see the fullness of it and live in your current state. We would have to be holy to withstand the consuming fire of his glory. Second, we understand that God is intrinsically righteous because he's absolutely virtuous, upright, faultless, and guiltless. In addition, he's the perfect lawgiver and the standard of each of these characteristics. So true righteousness, knowing right and wrong, cannot be known except knowing God. We'll expand on that in a few minutes. And third, the justice of God is impartial, Romans 2.11. God cannot be bribed, Deuteronomy 10.17. And because he's omniscient, all facts are known to him. So God's judgments are based solely upon the deeds of the individual. Completely fair, completely just. First Peter 1, 17, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. So these attributes alone, holiness, righteous, justice, must be kept in mind if we're going to give any kind of consideration to God's goodness. God's holiness sets him apart from man so much so that there is no way that we can really understand what God is doing or not doing or why he is doing or not doing whatever he does. He is separate from us. We do not understand him. His ways are far above our own. It's a product of his holiness. We don't have the whole picture. And therefore, without ability to discern, much less impartially judge, what God does or does not do in specific. His righteousness sets the standard of what is right and wrong, and so his justice then demands to carry out that justice according to his standard. So our ability to discern good and evil, right and wrong, cannot be known except through his righteousness and justice. So man's attempt to judge God by any other standard only reveals one thing. Man is not righteous. Man is also culpable. I've yet to meet anyone who tries to argue that God is not good, that recognizes their own culpability, their own guilt, their own responsibility before God. They have this twisted idea that if somehow they can bring God down to a level equal to or lower than their own moral standards, somehow this means they get to escape God's judgment. Understand that the question of God's goodness has no bearing at all on whether you will be judged by him or not. It only will have a bearing on the equity of that judgment. If God was evil then he could judge as an evil judge. And how do evil judges judge? By whatever they want. An evil judge will accept a bribe and pervert the truth. An evil judge doesn't have to follow justice. Now, since man has absolutely nothing to offer God, there's no bribe we can give him. There's no way then to sway him to our favor then that God could judge however he wants according to his whim of the moment. Do you realize that is the description of the Islamic God, Allah? That's exactly how he's portrayed throughout the Quran. Whimsical. Whatever he wants to do at the moment. Period. Such a God would be more dangerous because there's no means to know even how to appease him. Or if he could... Yet it is man's guilt before God that pushes them to this ludicrous concept that somehow they can escape God's righteous and just judgment. The very attribute they attack, his goodness, is the attribute that ensures they will be judged. Why? Well, first of all, again, man's not holy. 
We are not set apart. And without holiness, Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, no man will see the Lord. The only way to gain holiness and be set apart as righteous so that you can exist in God's presence is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No man sees the Father except through him. But through him we can see the Father. John 14, 6. Second, man again does not meet God's standard of righteousness. And his self-effort to achieve righteousness on his own by whatever means and methods he comes up is always going to fail. Man wants to determine right and wrong for himself and in his hypocritical self-delusion, he even will think that he's meeting his standard. But the truth is that man fails even in this. Remember Romans chapter 2? Romans chapter 1 is the immoral and righteous. They're very obvious that they're unrighteous people. Then we have the people who have an air of morality about them. No, they're not robbing banks. They're not out killing people. It's not as flagrant, but they are stealing things. It may just be pencils from work. It may be whatever, but if you are taking something that does not belong to you without permission, guess what that is? It's stealing. They not, may not be murdering people, but their hatred is such that the Bible says it is equivalent and they'll be judged as such. They don't meet the test. And so Romans 2.1 tells us, Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. They argue against God's goodness and love and want to judge God by their own measure, but they even fail in the application of their own standard to their own life. God is the one who determines right and wrong. We don't. And third, God's justice demands that all requirements of his law are met, including the just punishment of those who fail to follow those requirements. God put it this way in Ezekiel 18.4, through that prophet, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. That's pretty direct, isn't it? And since every person has sinned, actually is sinning, Romans 3.23, then we find that just wages, what you have earned through sin, is physical and spiritual death, Romans 6.23. The violation of God's law demands his justice be executed. And if there were no means to temper God's justice, then that judgment would need to be immediate. And that means all that mankind, every man, every woman, every child that has ever existed, would be without hope, without recourse against his wrath and condemnation to eternal hell. If God was not good, if God was not loving, that would have to happen immediately. You see, it is God's goodness, it is God's love that tempers his justice. It is out of his goodness and love that the attributes of patience and long-suffering and mercy emerge. And those attributes delay the execution of the condemnation from immediate to the future. God's goodness and love then also give rise to this attribute of grace by which God has gone even farther in making a provision for a forgiveness from our sin. Now, justice must still be satisfied. And because of God's grace, he has done so through the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why he died. It satisfies God's justice. Salvation from sin, its eternal consequences, then is founded in what? In God's goodness and love. 
That's where it's based. And it's satisfying his other attributes of justice and righteousness and holiness. And that's why there is no source of hope outside of Jesus Christ. Now, God's attribute of love is declared point blank throughout the scriptures. It's a stated fact of scripture, and it's evidenced throughout the Bible. The apostle John stated it directly. First John 4, 8, we know that one. God is love. It's an overwhelming attribute. It characterizes the rest of him. Paul referred to God as the God of love from with whom or through whom we can have peace, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Ephesians 2, 4 tells that it is out of God's great mercy that arises because of his love that we can have peace through God. We can have salvation in Christ, Ephesians 2, again, 4 through 8. Now, if these things were not true, where would we stand? We already pointed out earlier, Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. And that consuming fire, if it was unloving, what would you do? You would flee it. But what if that consuming fire is loving and has set its love upon you? There would be hesitancy. There would be some fear in approaching such a powerful being. And yet at the same time, once you understood the nature and the character of this consuming fire, you'd be attracted to it and feel safe and peaceful in its presence because that consuming fire is your protector. To use an analogy, a small child can be very afraid of dad. Dad's big. Dad's powerful. And if dad's upset and that power is displayed, children may scatter. At least they should. (laughs) They have better. And at the same time, that same power and strength of dad is the source of comfort and peace when is it displayed in the protection of that child. And so it is as we approach our God. In addition, the love of God is not like that of man. We have fond feelings of affection for other people that come and go as we value or like that person. If they do what we like, we have increasing fond feelings of affection. We value them greatly. When they do things we don't like, those Feelings diminish. We often call that love. That's not God's love at all. God's love is not based in anything in us. It is a chosen and self-sacrificial love for the best interest of the other person. Jesus said in John 15, 13, that a man might love enough to sacrifice himself For a friend, greater love has no one than this that one lays down for his friends. But God goes way beyond that. And he demonstrates his love toward us in that he did this and set his love upon us while we're his enemies. Most of you are familiar with Romans 5, 7 and 8. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would, would even dare to die. But God goes beyond that. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's a love that we can hardly comprehend. That act alone is sufficient to prove God's love for all time and eternity. God does not need to do anything else to prove his love. 
And yet he does so in his general goodness and in his loving involvement with us individually. But understand that Satan lies against that aspect of God's love too, that God is not personally involved. If you studied history, you realize that in the 1700s, there were a lot of deists in our land. Deism got started in the early 1600s in England. It spread to Germany and then spread to other places, including America, and kind of had a powerful influence in the 17th through 19th centuries. One of their core beliefs expresses this lie of Satan, and it's a belief that God is a first cause only without any direct intervention in the natural order afterward. Arising from that belief, the deists also denied the Trinity, the Incarnation, the divine authority of the Bible, the Atonement, miracles, and Israel as God's chosen people. Now, the legacy of deism is still around. It exists in a philosophical pursuit that's called mechanism. Everything's related to a machine. And so that God's not related to intervention. It just works the way machines do. Hmm, I wonder what's kind of underlying humanistic evolutionary thought in our land. Mechanism. And also exhibited itself in what's called literary higher criticism of the scriptures. They ended up denying all the miracles of the Bible. Their view of God was different. Now, few identify themselves today as deists, and yet many still hold their way of thinking. They view God as abstract, uninvolved, and therefore unloving. But the evidence of God's love is exactly the opposite. The Bible itself would have to be rejected totally to believe otherwise because it is the record of God's direct intervention in the affairs of men through miracles and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. God's promise is to continue to intervene, culminating the consummation of the ages when he returns. He's still involved with people. Think of what God's invitations to us are. He invites us to come to him and pray, to come to him and worship. Would a distant, separated God want that? No, he's personally involved. The God that has numbered the hairs on your head invites you to bring your prayers to him, to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. And so it is that the effective prayer of a righteous man does avail much because God acts. James 5.16, and so God's love is personal as well as universal. That God is good is also stated fact over and over again throughout the scriptures. His goodness is proclaimed the fact that good even exists, for all that is good comes from his hand. In Genesis 1, God created each day, and at the end of that day, he said it was good. At the end of the sixth day... He said it was all very good. That's his pronouncement. And though sin has marred creation since then, it still has not eliminated the evidence of God's goodness to us. Consider it's from God's hand we get everything we need for life. It is God that provides the sun. It's God that provides the rain for the plants. It is God that provides food for all of creation, which includes you and me. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. It is God that gives man both intellect and a body design that allows us to take raw materials from the earth and manufacture them into something useful. It is God that knit you together in your mother's womb, Psalm 139. It was he that breathed into you the breath of life, Job 33.4. James 1.17 states that every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That is the nature of our God. 
Every good thing you have, every breath you take is because God is good. Now, those who argue the existence of evil precludes an all-powerful God error in their argument because they are short-sighted. They are bound up in the fabric of time and in their own very limited experience. Even if they read every book in the world, their experience is still limited compared to an omniscient God. They do not understand the universe from the vantage point of eternity, but God does. The occurrence of a crime does not preclude the existence of a powerful police force and a good judicial system. It only precludes the police and judges have not yet concluded their good actions in bringing the criminal to justice. Evil exists because some of God's creatures, specifically certain angels and all of mankind, have rebelled against him. Evil continues on in the present time only because God is long-suffering and patiently working out his plan of redemption for his own glory. That patience endurance does not preclude God's power goodness. It only reveals additional attributes that belong to him. Over in Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 24, Paul explains some of the reason for that very patience. Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not only from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles." Now, let me quickly add here the verb tense in the phrase vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is what is called a reflexive middle. We don't have it in English. It's sort of between our active tense and passive tense. What it means is the vessels of wrath are involved in preparing themselves for destruction, and God is patiently enduring the evil they're presenting for his own purposes, but he will judge all evil eventually in his timing. You see, harder to explain for those who denigrate God's goodness and love is the existence of even the concept of good. If there is not a good God who has set an absolute standard, how can good be known? What would you use as a standard of righteousness by which you could live? Could you use evolutionary philosophy? What if you did? What would be the only good... It has no purpose, it has no meaning except survival. So anything that would enable you to survive over everybody else then would be good. That's evolutionary goodness. That's all you can come up with under that theory. What about societal acceptance? What if that is the standard? Well, let's ask a question. What society and at what time? Do we want 19th century America? How about 21st century Denmark? Extremely different from each other. Well, why don't we just go back to the 1940s and take on Nazi Germany? You like the present time? Anybody want to move to North Korea? Live by their standard of righteousness? Islamic terrorism, is a legitimate moral benchmark since it's accepted and promoted by so-called Palestinians, Hezbollah, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and funded by Iran's, uh, the nation of Iran? Does that make it acceptable because it's accepted in those societies? 
Is slavery acceptable? Because, you know, it's still practiced in a lot of countries around the world. A lot of third world countries still have slaves. Should we accept it, therefore? What about the oppression and abuse of women occurring in many societies where women are still viewed at the personal property of the men? What about lying and deceit? Is that okay? Did you know there was a tribe in New Guinea that when they first were told the gospel message, they thought Judas was the hero? Why? Because in their society, deceit of a friend was the epitome of virtue. They were that twisted. Read the book Peace Child, and he will tell you all about that. What about that if the standard is personal, your own personal standard? Well, that's what's advocated in our own society, isn't it, by the secularists? Hey, I, I get to do what I want. Who are you to judge me? It's just your own standard, whatever that happens to be. Well, if that's true, then why do you get to use your standard and not mine? And what if they're in conflict? If the standard is only personal, then what objection could anyone have against someone that considered it right and good to embezzle, to sell drugs to children, to sexually exploit teens, and to take vengeance at their own hands for every perceived or real slight? We have a lot of people in society that do act exactly like that. You see, what we end up with is a reduction down to might makes right, so... The morality of whatever the strongest group is is what prevails. You see, humans cannot define what is good except that there be an absolute standard of righteousness outside themselves. There is a good God, and that's the only reason we can even define something good or not. There's a good God. Those that claim that God is not good do so because they're proud and they are arrogant in their ignorance. They project upon God their own thoughts and feelings under a false assumption that God must be like them. But again, man is finite. He is sinful. It is foolish for him to try to judge the actions of an infinite holy being. And so they fail to recognize they are under God's judgment and it is out of God's goodness that they're even allowed another day of life that yet perhaps they might repent. Isn't that what Second Peter 3.9 tells us? God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He is long-suffering for us. Now, we fully recognize there are great disasters that occur and horrible evils committed by men against one another. But those things give no evidence against the goodness of God or his love. Instead, they proclaim the tenuous nature of our lives and that we better be ready to meet God at any time. We never know when it's going to end. Those warnings are actually an aspect of God's goodness. Over in Luke chapter 13, Jesus gave direction to his disciples concerning this and to those that were listening. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. Apparently, these had gone up to give their offerings and Pilate had them murdered. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's a warning. Are you ready? 
Suffering occurs because sin has consequences. We suffer the consequences of our own sin. We suffer the consequences of other people's sin. We suffer the consequences of living in a sin-filled and sin-cursed world. The world doesn't function according to God's design, not His original design. And those that reject God's goodness reject the loving provision of redemption in Jesus Christ. And so without repentance, turning away from sin to God and placing their faith in Jesus Christ, they will suffer the consequences of their sin for all eternity. And yet God lovingly warns over and over and over again. Now, if outright denial of God's goodness and love will not work, Satan has another method. It's the one that he used with Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. Don't deny it directly, just pervert it a little bit. Only deny that God is limited in his goodness. He is good, but only to a limited degree. He's loving, but only to a limited degree. And not enough for you to trust him. That was Satan's lie to Eve, wasn't it? He didn't come out brash and say, God is bad. He said, as, about what about the tree? He's withholding something good from you, Eve. God doesn't want you to take of that because then you would know good and evil and you'd be like God. He's holding out on you, Eve. He's okay, but he's not really good. He's not good enough for you to really trust him, Eve. Well, Eve did take. Her eyes were opened. She did know evil, but not like God. She knew it like Satan. God's provision, God's goodness gave a protection to Eve from experiencing sin. And that's why he made the prohibition. But she believed Satan's lies, didn't trust God, and went for her own definition of good. Satan's slander is going to have a variation, its magnitude, and according to the person who's listening to it and how much they believe. Some fall for it completely, and they don't trust God at all. Others are going to trust God to some limited extent, but they're not going to yield themselves to him completely. A lot of the counsel I end up doing is on this point. People believe these denigrations of God's goodness and love. And they end up with all sorts of problems. I can't trust God. I don't really believe he's good. One of the surest signs that a person really does not believe that God is good and therefore loving is they do not trust him for the future. They are filled with worry. They're filled with anxiety. They're afraid of what might happen. What if they lose their job? What if they end up in a severe financial difficulty? What if some medical problem arises and handicaps them? What if they can no longer do what they've always done? What if something happens to their children? What if, and you fill in the blank, we all have our fears. What if God allows that to happen? Or as Job said, that which I fear has come upon me. Now, planning for the future is wise. But what happens and what does it demonstrate when worry drives your decisions, when anxiety keeps you from sleeping, when fear controls you? You demonstrate you are having a problem with God. You're having a problem believing his character and trusting him because you don't really believe at that point he's good or loving enough to watch over and care for you. Now, Satan's subtle, and a lot of Christians have stumbled over his lies at this point. They will say, yes, I believe the Scriptures. Yeah, but at the same time, their actions don't show it. 
They may acknowledge Jesus' promise to be with them even to the end of the age, as he said in Matthew 28, 20. But in practical terms, they think that means God's standing like this and moving back and watching you drown. That's their view of God being with them? No, that's not what God is like. Many Christians memorize Romans 8, 26. And we know that God causes all things to work together to good for those who know God and love God and those called according to his purpose. We've got that down, but it's really only a cliche for most Christians. Do they really believe that is true? Too many, the fear is that God is not going to do what is good. He is going to allow what is bad to happen to them. And he will not enable that and work it together for your good. You see, poor theology, shallow Bible knowledge, and a perverted gospel have left many susceptible to this false idea that God's goodness and love means that nothing bad can happen to you. They take this wonderful book and they pervert it that way. That's not what this says. Over and over again, we find something different. They have been sold the lie that God is good and loves them and put together a wonderful plan for their life that means they can live carefree, doing dinner about anything they want without any troubles or trials. Such people then lose their faith when they experience a natural disaster or some evil comes upon them, some hardship comes upon them because now what they thought was the gospel isn't true. God must have failed them. We should not be afraid as Christians to fully acknowledge that bad things happen to us. Lots of bad things happen. Believers are killed and injured in earthquakes. Christians lose their homes to hurricanes and tornadoes. Saints get mugged and robbed. Christian women are raped. Believers do get cancer and other horrible diseases. Does this mean that God is not good? Does this mean that God does not love his children? You see, many professing Christians feel that way even if they will not state it. That's still where they are emotionally. That's still what's in the back of their mind. Understand again, all suffering is a consequence of sin. Our own sin, the sin of others, and living in a sin-cursed world. The suffering means one thing. You're not home yet. As long as you're here, you're not home yet. We are awaiting final redemption from this sin-cursed world. Paul points that out in Romans 8 to 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. He then goes on to describe our longing for heaven and final redemption. It's because God is good and loving we have a hope for glory of heaven. Too often we quickly forget the Christian life. It's about Christ. It's about His glory. It's not about us and our comfort here on earth. Just because you don't have the ease of life that you would like, just because someone else has what you envy does not mean in any way that God is not good to you. He is. We forget Romans chapter 5, James chapter 1, both say just about the same thing. It is through the troubles and the trials of life that God matures us and conforms us to the image of His Son. That's what life is about. If you believe Satan's lie, here you will fail the lessons that God wants you to learn. 
You'll continue to go through life self-centered and falsely accusing God. We like to claim the promise I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but we fail to recognize that that verse is in a passage dealing with learning to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can learn to be content in whatever thing I'm facing, just as Paul did. Read the whole passage. Paul learned to be content and endure many tribulations. How many of us could be like Joseph? We like telling our children this story, but it's a real story that should affect us. His brothers were jealous of him. They hated him so much, they're planning to kill him. Reuben Reuben intervened, and instead of killing him, they sold him as a slave when he was just 17. He spent 13 years as a slave and in jail for something he didn't do. It'd be another seven years before he'd see any of his family members again. Twenty years. What was Joseph's attitude toward God and his brothers after all that he had went through? All the injustice he had gone through? It's right there in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He said this, As for you, you meant evil against me. He wasn't fooled. He knew what they were doing. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, preserve many people alive. You were wrong. You were in sin. You're guilty. And God even used that to do something good. Can we respond like Joseph? He believed in the goodness of God. He saw God's loving hand at work even while he was suffering from the evil other evil that others had done against him. John 16:33 records that Jesus told his followers this, "These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world." That's where our hope is. What about 1 Peter 4:12 and 13? He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange when bad things happen. He says, But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You see, troubles and trials are to be expected. Paul told Timothy, and indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 It is because God is good that we have hope in the midst of anything that comes against us. As Paul says in Romans 5.5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. And he points right to the cross. We're assured of God's goodness. We're assured of his love. It's proven on the cross. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's when we look back in time and remember the price Jesus paid for our sins, the ultimate proof of his goodness and love. But there's one other lie against his goodness I need to expose. Satan spends much time trying to get people to believe that God is not good and loving. But he'll also use the opposite extreme. That can be useful to him, that God is so good and so loving that he will never condemn anybody to hell. That idea that God will accept me as I am without any expectation of change. God does offer salvation to you just as you are. 
But he also demands that you repent from your sins and place your faith in Lord Jesus Christ alone in order to receive the forgiveness of those sins. It's an offer to you as you are, but it's only an offer. It's not received until there's something done on your part. Only in Jesus Christ can you be made holy and righteous and be able to come into God's presence. Otherwise, his holiness and justice will execute his vengeance upon you. The full measure of justice will be presented. Take note as well that once you come to Jesus for salvation, God is not going to leave you alone. Praise God that he won't. He's going to begin the work of sanctification. He's going to change you and conform you to the image of his son. Holiness becomes your desire. Righteousness is the increasing practice of your daily life as you pursue holiness. So do not trample on the precious blood of Jesus Christ, this price paid for your transgressions against God by magnifying the love of God to such a degree that it disregards His holiness, His righteousness, and justice. We must deal with a God who has every attribute, not picking and choosing a few of them. Those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior reject God's love, and there is no other option for them but hell. But praise be to God that in His goodness and His love, it's been offered to us in Jesus Christ that we can come to this table this morning with thanksgiving. This is what he's done. He's proven his love for us.